May the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I have a confession to make. If you've heard me sing, this may surprise you, but I really enjoy musicals. And I have really enjoyed musicals for a long time. And my favorite musicals, uh, purely for the musical aspect of it, is Jesus Christ Superstar. And last Sunday night, uh, NBC showed a live version of Jesus Christ Superstar. You know how they do those live musicals. And so this was the newest one. And uh, and musically speaking, I-, I thought it was really good. And I think that the that the new version that they put on last Sunday night was probably the best adaptation of the musical that I've ever seen. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with it, Jesus Christ Superstar was originally a uh, concept album written in the ni- in 1970 by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, who also did Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and Andrew Lloyd Webber did the music for Phantom of the Opera as well. It was eventually made into a Broadway show, and there were two film adaptations made of it. The first was in 1973, and then a remake in 2000. And in this musical, which is quite controversial, uh, it seems like one of the themes is that all the characters in the musical misunderstand who Jesus is, including Jesus himself. The story is mainly told from the perspective of Judas. He sees Jesus as someone who started a genuinely good movement of helping others, but he's concerned that Jesus's popularity uh, has gotten to his head and that all the praise is distracting him from the real mission at hand to help the poor. Reminiscing in one of his songs, he says, there was no talk of God then, we called you a man. He's worried that the praise Jesus is getting uh, will cause backlash from the Romans. He says, we are occupied. Have you forgotten how put down we are? Most people interpret the show in a way that sees Judas as as the good guy. In fact, the actor who played him in the NBC version on Saturday night, I I watched an interview with him, uh, he said that he identifies with Judas because he, too, is a truth teller, just like Judas was, which is a little bit ridiculous. And that may have been what the writers of the musical were trying to convey. But even if it was, I think there are a lot of things embedded in the musical that make me think Judas is actually a really bad character. If the road to hell is paved with good intentions, then the Judas character is traveling that path on roller skates. As he's betraying Jesus to the Jewish authorities, he says, I have no thought at all about my own reward. I really didn't come here of my own accord. But then in the song Blood Money, he initially refuses any kind of monetary compensation for his actions, but at the end, accepts it on behest of the Pharisees. In one of the last numbers called Judas's death, The Judas character laments the fact that he was acting out of good intentions, but will be blamed for the death of Jesus. For I have been saddled with the murder of you. I have been spattered with innocent blood. I shall be dragged through the slime in the mud. And then he sings the reprise, I don't know how to love him, Mary Magdalene's song from earlier in the musical, which has its own problems. Uh, But he emphasizes the part of the song that says he's a man. He's just a man. He's not a king. He's just the same. There's a lot to not like about the theology in the musical, but one of the things I like about the Judas character is that perhaps unwittingly on the part of the writers and unwittingly on the part of the actor, he shows that when we let doubt fester in an unhealthy way, it can end up affecting us negatively. 
The real insidious part isn't the doubt itself, but the way that Judas rationalizes the doubt in a self-justifying way. In that regard, he's emblematic of all of us because that's human nature to do, and he's constantly doing it the whole musical. Doubt can, if utilized properly, be a catalyst for growth. For those of us who are raised in a non-Anglican manner, like me and Caroline and many of you, some sort of doubt probably played a role in getting you from wherever it was that you were into a sacramental tradition like Anglicanism. But if that doubt isn't properly handled, if we let it grow and we let it fester in an unhealthy way, then it can have negative consequences for us. But let me begin by saying doubt is, in some regards, inevitable. There are some progressive Christian thinkers, like Peter Enns in his new book, The Sin of Certainty, who even say doubt is good. And some people wear doubt on their chest like medals or an award. And I'm not sure if doubt is something that we should celebrate in that way, but it is something that we should be honest about. It does happen. We all go through stages where we do doubt. At some point in your life, you'll go through a period of desolation where you will begin to question things. Perhaps we could say that while doubt is a general condition that we all experience, the cause of that doubt may be unique to us. Maybe doubt originates for you because you just can't believe in a particular theological claim. Or maybe it's because of an experience that you had. Or maybe it's because of a disordered desire. And of course, the object of our doubt may vary too. Perhaps it's doubting the specific truth claims made by a particular church tradition, or maybe it's a larger problem with Christianity as a whole. The specifics may vary, but doubt is a universal thing that we all experience, and so it becomes a question. What do we do in those situations where we're undergoing doubt? And that's something that our gospel reading about doubting Thomas speaks to this morning. But before jumping into that gospel, I want to share with you two passages that I've often thought are connected to the Doubting Thomas story in some way. Luke 15, 3 through 7, and then John 10, 11 through 15. In Luke 15, 3 through 7, Jesus tells the parable, Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder and rejoices. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. These two passages show us the heart of God. He loves and he cares for people, even those who have gone astray. And he's faithful to act on that love. And I've often wondered if our reading from John this morning about doubting Thomas is meant to be a kind of embodiment of these two passages put together, right? John goes off by himself and Jesus pursues him, the one sheep who's lost out of the 11 apostles who are remaining. But our John reading this morning has two stories really in one. 
In the first, Jesus appears to the ten disciples post-resurrection and gives them the Holy Spirit along with the ability to bind and loose sins, a passage where we draw our theology on apostolic secession and confession. But the second story revolves around Thomas, who isn't present with the disciples, and we're not told why he's not there. Maybe he's just an introvert who doesn't want to be around people given the uh, events that he's still processing from Jesus' passion. The other disciples come and tell him about the tangible experience that they had with Jesus. Defiantly, Thomas proclaims that he won't believe until he can touch the wounds in Jesus' hands and side. So what does Jesus, the good shepherd, do? He goes after Thomas. More than that, he gives Thomas the opportunity to touch his wounds. What an intimate moment that must have been. And as he's feeling the real wounds and the real body of Christ, Jesus exhorts him, do not doubt, but believe. And all Thomas can say in that moment is, my Lord and my God. And Jesus ends the encounter by saying, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And I don't think we should read that too harshly. Jesus, the good shepherd, after all, went after Thomas in order that Thomas might believe. He was drawing Thomas to himself. However, Jesus' statement is reflective of the reality that it's better to not doubt, or rather, it's better for us to not let our doubts become unchecked in a matter that they debilitate our judgment and cause us to wield that, way, that doubt in the way that Thomas does when first confronted with the proclamation of the resurrection. If you're like me, Thomas doesn't represent an abstract idea or a distant historical event, but an ongoing struggle. Even, and maybe especially, around the Easter season, it's easy for us to be plagued by doubts. After all, what we're saying, what we're really saying, is that a Jewish man was born 2,000 years ago, somehow with a human and a divine nature, and that he died only to be raised again three days later. And that by believing that reality, we can have relationship with God. There's a band that I liked growing up called Pedro the Lion. They're an indie rock band that began in the 90s, and they were kind of one of the first Christian indie bands in existence. And I like them because I found them to be more honest than the average Christian music industry band that puts out the same sounding songs over and over again. The front man of Pedro the Lion is a guy named Dave Bazan. And it's hard for me to doubt that at one point, Bazan actually believed the gospel. On YouTube, there's a beautiful clip of him singing, Be Thou My Vision, which is really amazing. And you can read interviews with him where he gives his testimony and he talks about theology and about the impact that the Christ story has on him. But around 2009, Dave Bazan deconverted from Christianity and wrote this heart-wrenching album called Curse Your Branches which is kind of his breakup letter to God. And he sings, with the threat of hell hanging over my head like a halo, I was made to believe in a couple of beautiful truths that eventually had the effect of completely unraveling. So why do we doubt? Why did he doubt? Why did Thomas doubt? Why do I doubt? Why do you doubt? What motivates it? Being fully aware of the risk of oversimplification and also aware of the reality that there are whole worlds within each human person because we're incredibly complex beings, I think there are three main motivations for why we doubt. The first is insecurity. 
As humans, we crave stability. We crave certainty. We crave being right about whatever our views are. The problem is we can't be 100% about everything all the time. So I think that if we act as though we're always right automatically beyond a shadow of a doubt, we end up setting ourselves for disappointment later on. The harder, the higher you go, the harder you fall. But I think the second reason is cynicism. We become jaded and tired. Maybe it's because of other people or maybe it's because of a system that's in place. When I was in high school, I was in a Christian community where there are lots of double standards and unhealthy hypocritical judgment. And as a result, I went through a pretty lengthy period of doubt and grappling with my faith, whether Christianity was even something I wanted to continue to participate in. Now, ultimately, I was responsible for it because I allowed myself to be overly affected by what was happening in the community and by the actions of others. However, when we become incredulous, it becomes easy for us to fall into debilitating doubt. And I think the third reason that we might doubt is because we engage in self-justification. We live in a culture where we're constantly being told that we need to break free from the constraints that bind us. Christianity, on the other hand, tells us that we're most free when we're serving God. So we're constantly faced with the tension between those two things. If we buy into the larger culture's idea that autonomy is the most important thing, then of course we begin to doubt the veracity of Christianity's truth claims. This sort of doubt, I think, is pretty prevalent because it's genuinely hard for us to constantly swim upstream from the dominant culture. The key for this particular doubt, I think, is to be aware of the underlying motivation for its existence. And ultimately, when we're dealing with people who are experiencing that, they can put up as many arguments, but it really becomes a posture question. Like I said earlier, doubt is inevitable, and none of this is to doubt shame. But at the same time, conquering doubts in the right way can cause growth. So what are we to do? We're faced with doubts, so what do we do? I think the answer is threefold. The first is that we trust Jesus, the good shepherd. He cared about the one sheep, he cared about Thomas, and he cares about you. He died for you and he can handle whatever doubts you throw at him. But second, you can trust the community that Jesus established. In John's gospel, Jesus gives authority to the apostles. In our Acts reading, we heard the kerygma, which is the Greek word for the apostolic proclamation, that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. God raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and by faith in his name, his name itself has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given him perfect health in the presence of all of you. Repent, therefore, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send his Messiah appointed for you. That is Jesus. Scripture is so important because it's the church's book and it preserves this apostolic proclamation and contains God's word. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed. Third, trust the sacraments. Sacraments are outward, visible, and physical signs that God is inwardly and invisibly and spiritually working in your life. Are you doubting? Remember your baptism. Are you doubting? Cling to the Eucharist. We have a God who acts on our behalf. 
He's acted throughout history in great and large ways. He acted in creation. He acted in the Exodus, the conquest of the Holy Land, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection. But he also acts in micro ways. He acted in your life. He acted in my life. Last week, we gathered to see him act in Jude's life. Still getting over that. <laughs> God's micro actions are tied to his macro actions. Easter is the time for us to think about this reality because after a long Lenten season where we become acutely aware of our own depravity and need for God, we celebrate the fact that he acted on our behalf. To close, I'm going to pray Psalm 111 again and listen carefully to the emphasis on God's action. So let us pray. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of honor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has gained renown by his wonderful deeds. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He is ever mindful of his covenant. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his holy people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Amen.